When I was growing up in the Midwest, there was not as much to do as there is now for kids. Uh, we did not have cell phones or iPhones. We couldn't do Instagram and Twitter and all the cool stuff people are doing now. Uh, we didn't even have the internet, actually. I mean, we, I think my parents got a computer in the early 90s. It was this huge honking thing and uh, definitely no internet there. Uh, in terms of TV usage, uh, we didn't have cable. Most people, most of my friends didn't have cable at that point, so no, no Disney Channel. I think I was watching like DuckTales and Rescue Rangers and stuff like that, but there wasn't a lot of cartoons on, certainly not all the time. And then for gaming systems for kids, there really wasn't a lot. We had Atari, which was cool in its own way. Uh, you know, the, the whole Nintendo revolution with the Super Mario Brothers didn't come out until like, I was kind of somewhere in elementary school, but most of my friends and I didn't get that right away. And so as crazy as it sounds, we actually had to go outside and find things to do out there uh, to entertain ourselves. And so one of the things that we, we found to do, which is going to sound really lame to some of you young people, but we would, we would go out and pick these big blades of grass uh, from somebody whose parents hadn't mowed the lawn for a while. And so you'd find a really long one that was really thick, and you'd put it between your lips, and you would try to whistle. And if you could whistle well with that thing between your lips, you could make cool sounds. I, I wouldn't really call them music, but they, they sounded kind of neat, almost musical. And uh, if there was a body of water nearby, you could find these reeds. The grass reeds, they're hollow on the inside. Uh, you don't want to pick uh, poison oak. They're also hollow, but that's, that's bad news. Uh, that happened before. But you get these grass reeds, and you poke holes in them, and you can turn them into little flutes. You blow on them. And again, I wouldn't really call it music, what was coming out, but it was, it was kind of nice sounds. The trouble was they would kind of disintegrate pretty quick because they're grass and you're pressing on them and your saliva is going in there. And so they would wither and get bruised and just kind of break down. But it wasn't a big deal. You just toss them and get another reed. Now, the interesting thing about that is that me and my friends weren't the ones who invented that activity, actually. Uh, it, it's been around for a long time. Even the ancient shepherds used to do that. Ancient shepherds would take their sheep down to watering holes and they would pick these reeds and turn them into little flutes and just play around with them, just like me and my friends would do. And some scholars, not all of them, but some scholars think that that may explain or shed a little bit of light on a passage from the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 42. And you don't have to turn there, we're going to have it on the big screen. It's a messianic prophecy, a prophecy about Jesus. It says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Now, some scholars think that this reference to a bruised reed might be a reference to one of those little reed flutes. And so the idea here is that when the Messiah comes, on one hand, he'll be this powerful world ruler, a, a ruler who brings universal justice and peace to the earth. But on the other hand, he will be this personal, compassionate Savior who will be drawn to the kind of people who are like these broken, bruised reed flutes. People who maybe at one time, it seemed like God was using them to make music through their life. Not perfect music, but nice sounds at least. But now because of their own choices, the sinful choices of others, circumstance, it just feels like their life has become bruised and crushed and withered. And so from a human standpoint, it would just seem like they have nothing to offer God. It would seem like when the Messiah comes, he will pick people who seem really qualified and, and have everything together, but those kind of people he'll just push to the side. 
But Isaiah said that's not the case. He says when the Messiah comes, those are the kind of people that he will be drawn to, that he'll go to, because he can supernaturally restore their lives to make music again. That's the kind of Savior that he will be. Not a spiteful, vengeful God who wants to make you suffer for your sins, but rather a compassionate Savior who wants to forgive and restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And I think it's so crucial for us to understand that. Not just for ourselves, so that we ourselves can receive God's forgiveness and hope, though we, we need to, but so that we also can offer forgiveness and hope to others. If you think that God is easily angered with you and he's, he's constantly ticked off with you and he's very reluctant to show mercy and forgiveness to you, that's probably how you will act towards other people in your life. But if you truly believe that God is slow to anger and abounding in love and quick to offer mercy and forgiveness, that's probably how you will interact with other people. We're going to see a very beautiful example of that today in our passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Pastor John and now myself are preaching a series through 2 Corinthians. And uh, Pastor John has said several times that this is a tough book to preach on, and I agree. Uh, I love 2 Corinthians. There's some great themes here. Personally, it's one of my favorite letters from Paul. We'll see if it still is by the, the end of the series. But right now, at least, it's, it's personally one of my favorites. Some great themes. But it's a very personal letter. It's very personal. Paul has been having an ongoing correspondence with the church in Corinth. A lot of, lot of water under the bridge. A lot of stuff has happened. And we don't know everything that's going on. Uh, Pastor John compared it to reading someone else's mail. I would compare it to overhearing part of a one-sided phone conversation. So you say you're in your house, you come downstairs, and your, your wife or your kid or your friend is on, the, on their phone talking to someone, and they say something really weird. And you're like, wow, that's weird. What are, you, what, you know, what are you saying? But you probably don't assume that they're crazy, that they've lost their marble. I mean, maybe you already believe that about your spouse. But typically, you just say, okay, well, that was a really weird comment. You know, if they're like, chicken, right? And you're just like, what are you talking about? But you assume that within the context of the conversation, what they're saying makes sense. If you could be, uh, if you could hear the whole conversation, it would make sense. And so you just assume that, and you just, you know, continue walking. You don't, you know, take them to a special place to help them. Uh, you just assume that they're they're rational. And so I think that we have to do that a little bit with with Second Corinthians. There are passages here that we don't quite understand. They don't quite make sense to us, and it's easy to say, "Man, what's Paul talking about?" But we have to give him the benefit of the doubt. We have to assume that that what he's saying made sense within the conversation that he was having with them. Uh, but we have to recognize we don't know everything. There are some things, though, we do know, and I will quickly share those with you. They're in your, in your handout for today, a little background on 2 Corinthians. Uh, we know for sure that Paul planted the, the Corinthian church. He spent about a year and a half there. We read about that in Acts chapter 18. So he spends about a year and a half in Corinth, does some really good ministry. God blesses it. He, he has some good leaders, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, and gets all these good leaders and, uh, and the church seems to be doing pretty good. So after a year and a half, he takes off because he's a missionary. He's a church planner at heart. So he leaves, uh, travels around, plants other churches. And at some point, the leaders in the church in Corinth write him a letter. And they list some problems that are going on there. They, they uh, ask him some questions and they send it to him. He gets the letter and he writes, he responds, and he writes what we know as 1 Corinthians. 
He writes this letter to them, sends it to them, and hopes that that's going to take care of the problems there. Unfortunately, it doesn't take care of all the problems. Uh, problems just get bigger. Some guys that we, we call the false apostles, they come in, and they, they claim to be apostles, they claim to be serving Christ, but actually they were serving themselves. They were trying to get authority in the church so that they could get money. The church would support them. And so they were preaching heresy, stuff that wasn't true. And they were lying about Paul. They're trying to undermine Paul's authority. They want people to, uh, you know, to feel like they can't trust him. They're trying to undermine his reputation and slander him. And so that really threw the church in an uproar. Everybody's like, man, can we trust Paul? Is he credible? You know, how, do, how do we know if this guy's really an apostle? And so Paul hears about this. It's a big deal to him. He travels to Corinth, and he has what he calls a very painful visit. We don't know exactly what happened, but he's probably publicly attacked and slandered, and, and just, you know, he probably got upset and just didn't go very well. So he leaves, but after he leaves, he writes a letter to them, and he, he refers to it as the severe letter. We know about it from 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and a few other references. He writes a very tough letter, and he says, hey guys, basically saying, guys, you gotta, you gotta get right with God. Like, you guys are going away from Christ. You're, you're straying off the path. Like, you need, to, you need to repent. You need to get right with God. And you need to discipline some of these leaders who are teaching heresy and trying to lead you away from Christ. A very tough letter. He sends it with Titus to the church, and, and he's worried. Like, he's worried the whole time. He's trying to work in Troas, but he's, he's having trouble focusing. So he leaves Troas. He starts traveling toward Corinth, and he meets Titus on Titus's, on the way back. And so they meet each other. And pa- Titus says, hey, Paul, good news. Good news. The majority of the church has repented. In fact, the majority of the church was on your side the whole time. Maybe they were quiet about it, but they were always on your side. They were always committed to Christ. It was really only a very vocal minority that were, that were against you and were trying to lead the church astray. And so Paul gets that message, and so he sits down and he writes what we know as 2 Corinthians, the letter, uh, the letter of 2 Corinthians to them. And in this letter, you, you, you sense two different tones. On one hand, Paul is very relieved. Okay, he's relieved. The, the, the nuclear meltdown, the, the self-destruction of the church has been avoided. Right there, The majority are still focused on Christ. They're following Christ. So he's relieved by that, but he's also still defensive. Because okay, they're not out of the woods yet. They're still a minority who are very antagonistic towards him and who are teaching heresy. And so he's relieved, but he's also defensive at the same time. And that's why sometimes he seems a little bit like schizophrenic in this letter. Like on one hand, he's like, oh, I love you guys. And the next moment, he's like, you know, because he's, he's, he's relieved. Oh, I'm so glad most of you are following Christ. But then he's still upset with that minority. So he's relieved and defensive. And in this passage we're looking at today, probably the situation is that some of the people in that minority group, some of the rebels, some of the leaders of that group, have, at least one of them, it seems, has repented and, co- and wants to come back into the church, the majority, into the fellowship. And the question is, what do we do? What do we do with this person? So that's the context as we get into the passage, into verse 5. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. So Paul starts out and he says, if anyone has caused grief, and I think that's a very gentle way of saying somebody did cause grief. Somebody in the church 
And, and he's talking to the Corinthians. He says, we all know who it is. Somebody caused grief. I don't want to call them out. I'm not going to name them. I'm not going to call them on the rug. But we all know somebody. We know who it is. They caused grief to you guys, to the church, and they've caused grief to me. And historically, the, the question has been, who is this person? Who, who's caused grief? Some people think this is a reference to the, to the person, uh, the sexually immoral person in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that Paul kind of, he calls them out there. Some people think that. Other people think that this is one of the ringleaders of the movement against Paul. And the reality is we, we can't know for sure. We're not, we're not positive. But many scholars lean toward that second option. Many scholars think this is probably a man who is helping to lead that movement against Paul and away from the true gospel. And it was very likely that this guy was attacking Paul's reputation and was trying to stir up opposition against him. And so it's very interesting that, that Paul really starts out by deflecting the offense. He deflects it. He says, look, he's talking to the Corinthians. He says, hey, this guy hurt you guys a lot more than he hurt me. Like, you were there. You had to deal with it. He wounded you. He was trying to lead you away from Christ. Like, the, the offense you have, the grief you have, is much worse than mine. And so Paul acknowledges the pain this guy has caused the church, but then he qualifies it two times. He says, he's, this guy has grieved you to some extent. That means to a very limited extent. And not to put it too severely. That means not to exaggerate. So Paul's saying, this guy has hurt you, but let's not exaggerate it. Let's not make this a bigger deal than it needs to be because you've already punished him. He says the, the, the punishment inflicted by the majority is sufficient for him. Now, the word punishment there, it, it's, not a, it's a word for a legal penalty. It's not a personal vengeance. It's a legal penalty that the church had put against this guy. Probably what happened was when they got that letter from Paul, that severe letter, they, they recognized what was going on, and, the, and, and they recognized that this guy was way out of line in the kind of stuff he was saying about Paul and his teachings about Jesus. And so they confronted him on that. And when he refused to repent, the majority of the congregation came together and they formally disciplined him. They probably put him out of the fellowship. Jesus actually talks about this process in Matthew 18. Pretty well-known passage. He says, if somebody sins against you and it's a big deal, go to that person one-on-one. If that doesn't work, bring someone else or a couple people. If that doesn't work, go to the church. And so apparently the Corinthian church had gone through some sort of a process like that with this guy. And it worked. Paul says that the punishment is sufficient for him. The idea is that this guy has repented. He's humbled himself. It's enough. And so Paul says, yes, yes, he hurt you, but let's not make this a bigger deal than it needs to be. You disciplined him, and he repented, and now it's time to move on. See, I think the temptation here for the church was to really make this guy suffer. Like, Paul is really downplaying the whole situation, but in reality, this was a big deal. This guy had hurt people. He had tried to lead them away from Christ. Like, that, that's a big deal. And so I think that some people were probably thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, we can't just let him off the hook that quickly. He can't just apologize and expect to be welcomed right back into the church. Maybe we should make him wait a while to be readmitted. Maybe we should put him on a probation for a couple months. Or maybe we let him in, but we, you know, we treat him like a, like a second-class Christian. You know, set him in the corner, put a little dunce cap on his hat or so, head on, you know, something like that. Uh, I mean, the idea is, look, he shamed us. He hurt us. We need to shame him. We need to hurt him. But Paul says that is not how Christians should act. That is not how the church should act. Verse 7. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him 
so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Paul's saying that instead of shaming this guy, instead of making this guy continue to suffer, they need to completely forgive and comfort him and welcome him back into the church. And it's very different from what I hear sometimes from from some Christians, uh, where I'll hear a phrase like, well, you know, I forgave that person, he apologized, I forgave him, but I I don't have anything to do with him. Paul's saying the opposite. He's saying you need to reestablish your relationship. You need to show this guy love. You need to bring joy and hope back into his life. Otherwise, he will be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. The overwhelm there, in, in the Greek, the word picture is to be swallowed up by a, by a wave of the ocean. This huge wave just swallows you up and sucks you under. And excessive sorrow means despair, hopelessness, depression. It's when you look at the consequences of your own bad choices and you can't see any hope, any way out, everything seems black. And you feel like giving up. That's what it means to be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. And Paul is saying that that is not God's will for people. That's not how God operates. No matter how bad a person's choices have been, God can restore their life, and he wants to. He wants to. And so when a person repents, God doesn't withhold his love and his forgiveness. He runs to them like the father ran to the prodigal son. God's heart is to restore broken relationships. He never punishes people out of spite. Now, God does not always immediately remove all the consequences for our sins, but he always offers hope and joy. He says, look, it may be tough for a while, but there's hope. Trust me, I will get you through this. I will restore you. And I think that's what Paul is telling the believers here about this man. There may still have been some consequences for his sin. If he was a leader in the church, I doubt that he was immediately put back into leadership. But as a believer, he was to be welcomed back with joy as an equal in God's kingdom. It's as if Paul is telling them to to throw him a party like the father threw a party for the prodigal son. He's saying, you should be excited that this guy repented. We need to celebrate with him, not continue to be upset. God doesn't hold his sin against him, neither can we. Paul takes us even a step further in verse 8. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Now, it sounds like Paul's just repeating himself, but the word reaffirm there, it means to publicly ratify something, publicly declare something. So Paul's saying it's not enough for you to simply comfort this guy. You need to publicly declare that he is forgiven and welcomed back to the church as a member in good standing. You publicly disciplined him, and under the circumstances that was appropriate, but now that he's repented, you need to publicly reaffirm your love for him, your concern for him. And by doing that, by publicly declaring that he is a member of the church, that he's back in good standing, you are formally concluding the issue. It's done. It's finished. It's buried. And it can never be dragged up to used against this guy. Verse 9. The reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive... I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. 
So Paul's saying, look guys, my point in writing that letter to you, that severe letter, it was not to try to get you to take sides with me against this guy. My whole purpose was to see if you would be obedient to Christ. I wanted to see if you'd be faithful to the gospel. And now that it's clear that you are loyal to Christ, and now that this guy has repented, we need to be unified in forgiving him. Paul even goes on, he talks about himself. He he says, look, if this guy has hurt me personally, like if there's any kind of residual issue there, I've forgiven it completely in the sight of Christ for your sake, for the sake of the church, so that Satan might not outwit us because we are not unaware of his schemes. It's an interesting phrase. The idea is Satan has schemes, he has plans for this church, and Paul says we're not unaware of them. Well, what, what probably were those plans? Well, we know that one of Satan's plans was to try to lead this church into heresy. He's trying to lead this church into blatant sin, pull them away from Christ. And he did that by deceiving this guy, deceiving some other guys, and he was trying to use them to then pull the rest of the church away from Jesus and, and, and away from Paul. And when that didn't work, though, Satan had another plan. He said, okay, you guys, you guys have, have responded to that one. Well, let me see if I can make you really harsh and judgmental and mean to this guy so that he just gets overwhelmed with excessive sorrow, despairs, feels like he can't be forgiven, and walks away from Christ that way. Either way, Satan's happy. I think that Satan's equally happy with either licentiousness, I mean, it's just sinning freely, or legalism, being harsh and mean to people. I think if, if the church is willing to tolerate blatant sin and heresy, Satan's cool with that. He's very cool. I mean, if we're just going to be like, hey, anything goes, you want to teach the Book of Mormon, that's cool. You know, if we're like that, Satan's very happy with that. He's, he's fine with that. But if the church tries to address sin... With a, real, with a real harsh attitude, with condemnation, with, with judgmentalism, Satan's happy with that too. He loves to heap condemnation and despair on people and make them feel like there's no hope for forgiveness and restoration. Either way, he can divide the church and he can destroy people's faith. And so Paul says we are not unaware of Satan's schemes. When he leads people into blatant sin and heresy, we are going to respond with discipline and love. And then when people humbly repent, we are going to immediately welcome them back with complete forgiveness so that Satan can't beat them over the head with condemnation. Now, in a lot of sermons on this passage, I find that the application is very personal. Uh, Typically, the pastor will say something like, you know, look how good Paul is at forgiving. You need to forgive too. You know, you need to forgive the people in your life who've hurt you. Uh, you know, you can't treat people badly in your life, you know, restore relationships, that sort of thing. And that's a, that's a good application. That's, that's a good, that's, that's fair. Um, Jesus says, you know, don't just forgive somebody seven times. You've got to do it seven times 70. Every time somebody sins and repents, you have to seek to be reconciled with them. But I don't think that's Paul's main point here. I think Paul's focus is a little more corporate. I think he's looking at the whole church. And I think in his mind, he's saying that churches have to be able to completely forgive members who commit big, scandalous sins that hurt the entire church. I think that's what Paul's mindset is here. The reality, guys, is that scandalous sins, big sins, public sins, embarrassing sins happen in churches. And they can happen to anyone. If you're back there saying, oh, it could never happen to me, you better be careful because you're about to, you know, it's about to happen. Uh, 
And seriously, we have to humble ourselves. Anyone can fall. And the reality is you can't be part of a church for a long time without encountering some embarrassing, public, scandalous sin. It happens. A person creates division and tries to split the church. A person steals church property or church funds. A person starts spreading heretical teachings. A couple people in the church have an affair. These things happen. We don't condone these things. The the results, the consequences of these things are devastating. But at the same time, we have to be realistic, not naive. They happen. And when they happen, we need to do two things that we see in this passage. First, we have to help people see their sin and get out of it. We have to go to them in love and say, hey man, you are entangled in this sin. It's hurting you. It's hurting others. It's destroying our church. Man, you've got to get out of this. Satan has deceived you. We have to go to people and help them to see that in love. And we say, I'll help you. I'll walk with you. It's going to be tough, but I'll, I want to help you get out of this. We have to take that initiative. That's absolutely essential. And that's the first step. But the second step is equally as important. We ha- when people repent, when we go to them and they repent, then we must forgive and comfort and celebrate and immediately welcome them back into the church. We cannot continue to hold people's sins against them. We must never shame people and treat them as second-class Christians when they have repented and they have sought to get right with God and with us. We've all received extravagant grace from God, which none of us deserves. And therefore, we must offer grace to each other. Our desire must never be to make people suffer for their choices. It's always for them to be reconciled to God and to us. God doesn't throw away bruised reed flutes. He restores them to play music again. And so must we. So must we. Join me in prayer. Father, I thank you first that you are so gracious and merciful to me and to each person here. I thank you, Lord, that you do not treat me as my sins deserve, but you are kind and merciful and patient. You discipline us in love, but it's always to bring us back to you. It's never to just hurt us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to treat people in the same way, desiring to see them right with God and right with us and loving them and offering them mercy and grace and welcoming them back with joy when they repent and immediately get being reconciled. I pray that you would work on us this week. And if there are people in our lives that we've struggled to forgive, give us the grace to forgive and to seek reconciliation. Let us be known as a church that is, that is holding firmly to the truth but is also incredibly incredibly gracious and loving. We thank you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand with me for the benediction. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them.
May you live this week as an ambassador of Christ, believing deeply that through faith in Christ, your sins are forgiven and God does not hold them against you. And may you offer that same grace and forgiveness to others. If you would like to receive prayer today, there will be prayers available in the fireside room. Otherwise, I hope that you'll stay and join us on the plaza for food and fellowship. You are dismissed. Go in peace.